Good morning. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Joe, one of the pastors here. We're going to continue our series on Genesis. Um, And today we're going to pick up chapter 6, the story of of Noah's Ark. Um, And before we get into that story, though, I want to tell you two other stories. They're very old stories, um, uh, like 2000 BC old. Um, I want to share those with you as a, a framework for our conversation around Noah's Ark. The first one is a story about a guy named Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh is the kind, uh, is a king, and as king, he realizes that he's not going to live forever. He becomes terrified of this idea of dying, and he's king, and he's powerful, and so he, uh, surely someone uh, with that kind of power could figure out how to bypass death. And so he remembers that once upon a time, one of his ancestors didn't die. Instead, he bypassed death and went to live for eternity in the underworld. So Gilgamesh decides, of course, in a very ancient epic sort of way, he's going to go down there through the underworld and look for his ancestor and see how his ancestors somehow bypassed death. So in this really rather terrible trip through the various parts of the underworld, Gilgamesh finds his ancestor. And he asks him, and uh, he says, how did you do it? How did you bypass death and live forever? And his ancestor tells him this story. He tells him about a story about this god, Enlil, who decided to wipe the earth of humanity, to kill everyone with a flood. But another god, Ea, went to his ancestor and warned him. He said, hey, this flood is coming. You need to build a boat and gather your family, gather some cattle, gather some valuables, and get some professional sailors to run the boat. And so the ancestor does all of that. And the storm begins And it continues to rain and storm for seven days and seven nights. And eventually the ancestor's boat gets snagged on top of a mountaintop. And when it dries up, he leaves his boat and he goes and worships his gods. Not the one that tried to kill everyone, but the one who at least warned him and the other ones that he wanted to worship. Well, the god Enlil, who had decided to kill all of humanity, isn't happy. He meant to kill everyone, but one family survived who's going to now go and populate the world. And so, in this sort of strange punishment, he makes the ancestor immortal. And he ends up living then in the underworld forever. And that's the story. That's the story his ancestor tells Gilgamesh about how he ended up living for forever. And so, Gilgamesh, he hears this story and he's not happy because there's no way in this story for him to become immortal. It's so specific to the story of his ancestor. So he's frustrated, and in the end, he decides that he's going to become immortal, not in his own life, but in his legacy. And so he invests everything into his great city, Uruk, and that it would become big and successful and make a name for himself, and that through the legacy of his city, he would then live forever. That's one story. The second story is similar. This god, Enlil, shows up again, yet again, trying to get humanity, uh, has, uh, 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 to get rid of humanity. And this time, it's because humans have grown so much. And there's just so many of them that the god finds their presence too loud and too annoying. They're a nuisance. And so he's going to kill them all. This time, he tries it with a drought. But the hero of the story, this time, uh, a tri- uh, I never say this name right, a, a tray. Atrahasis, Atrahasis, um, Atrahasis, uh, and I might not be pronouncing that right, but that's the best I can do, with support of this other god, Inki, brings the drought to an end. And so the cycle happens again, and this god, Inlel, decides to kill everyone with a drought, and Atrahasis once again diverts it with the help of another god. And so eventually, Inhel says, I'm going to order a flood to kill everyone, because these humans are just too annoying. 
So Enki tells Atrahasis, hey, you need to build a boat to weather the storm. And that storm's going to last for seven days and seven nights. Well, the storm was so bad and the annihilation of humanity is so great that the rest of the gods thought the god Enlil, you know, had just gone crazy, causing so much destruction. But Atrahasis in his boat survives. And when he gets out onto dry land again, he offers a sacrifice once again to worship and to thank the gods for saving his life. These are two stories uh, from ancient Mesopotamia. Um, they sound eerily similar to the story we're going to consider in Genesis today, the story of Noah's flood. There's a lot of good reasons to be familiar with these ancient stories uh, when reading Noah's flood. For some, they're evidence that, the, that there was some kind of devastating flood, that multiple peoples and people groups wrote about stories regarding floods, just adding to the evidence that something must have happened to log that into the history and the storytelling of people. For today, though, I want to use it for a slightly different reason, but just, I think, as important. One of the ways that we can better understand some of the old stories of Genesis, and, and the thing you got to understand, Genesis is an old book. The stories are old, and so much of their context is lost on us because they're thousands. They happen. This, these stories were told thousands and thousands of years ago. But one of the ways that we can better understand these old stories is to compare them to their contemporaries. You see, Noah's flood isn't just a biblical story. It was a kind of story that other cultures were telling as well. And once we realize that, we can actually start to understand it in, I think, a slightly new way. Here's what I mean. Consider the story of the uh, three pigs. Uh, I've realized in talking with Alyssa this morning, there's actually probably different versions of this. Uh, There's the version we tell ourselves together. uh, But the original story of the three pigs is pretty simple. One builds a house out of wood, the other out of straw, and the other out of bricks. Maybe you're familiar with the story. And there's a wolf who wants to get in and eat the pigs. So he blows the house, the wood house down, and he eats the pig. That's how the original story is told. I understand we've softened it, um, especially in a world where we don't get our pigs from a farm. They come prepackaged. We don't want to think about the idea of pigs dying. But uh, in the original story, the wolf blows the house down, eats the pig. He blows the straw house down, eats the pig, but he can't blow the brick house down. It's a rather intense story, uh, but that's how it goes. Now, here's what I want you to think about. What if I told you that that wasn't the true version of the story? That's not what really happened. What if I told you that the wolf wasn't trying to eat the pigs, but protect them? That the wolf was some kind of maybe building inspector whose primary concern was the safety of the pig. So he blows the wooden house down, not to hurt the pig, but to show the pig and condemn the pig for the pig's laziness. You need a stronger house. And he blows the straw house down to to show that pig that he needs a a stronger house. But the brick house stands, and so the wolf goes in and celebrates with with the third pig over a nice meal of fried chicken, because pigs and wolves both love fried chicken. And pigs aren't exactly innocent either, friends. They'll eat anything. Now, if I told you that story, and my version was the only version you'd ever heard, there'd be no reason to think of the wolf as anything other than a reasonable character, a good character, not the villain, who wants what's best for the pigs. But if I told you that story now, when you have only ever heard some version of the first one, where the wolf wants to eat the pigs, whether he does or not, it would be sort of radical. You would have to think maybe a little bit about it and try to imagine the wolf as different because you've heard this other story about the wolf. It might be hard for you to even imagine the wolf as being anything other than this vicious creature who wants to eat the pigs. What makes 
my alternate version interesting isn't the story itself, but the way in which the story is different from the version you've already heard. This is a really useful way to read scripture sometimes. When the Old Testament was written, everyone already had a view on what the big bad wolf was about, aka who the gods were. Everyone believed in the gods. This is different than our world today, uh, but people believed in gods and they had very specific stories that were being told about the gods and who these gods were and how mean they were and how vicious they were and how they were trying to get rid of humanity. And there were some good gods, but there's a lot of bad gods and everyone already had a story, a narrative about who God is. And then the Old Testament story comes up and God shows up and speaks through his prophets and through his leaders and says, let me tell you the real story about the wolf. And it's not nearly what you thought it would be. Let me tell you who this God really is. This is one of the benefits of comparing old biblical stories to their contemporaries. When we know the story enough uh, that everyone else knows and compare it to the story that God is telling, we can see the point that God is trying to make. I want to do a little bit of that with the story of Noah's flood. So with that in mind, hopefully I haven't lost you, uh, let's look at it. Before we do, let's pray. God, we give you thanks for your word um, and how you have chosen to communicate to us and tell us who you really are. Lord, help us to unravel the stories of you and of us so that we can really know you. We can really understand your heart. Help us to block out all of those negative stories that still go on about who you are and what you're about. And help us listen to who you really are. In your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 6, starting with verse 5. And it says this. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Well, friends, here is the first difference. Humanity was evil. To the nth degree. I mean, every thought of the human heart was only evil all the time. I mean, that's just, you can't. You can't add more hyperbole to that. You know, in one of the epics of the the other flood stories, the problem with humanity was that they'd been around a long time. You know, it was just, they were just old. It says the humans had been around a long time and God, you kind of get the impression that God just was like ready for something new. You know, humans had run their course. You know, let's think of something better. In the other epic, you get that humanity had grown too fast and become too big. They were too loud. They become a, a nuisance. And the God felt that humans maybe had infected the planet like cockroaches and he needed to exterminate them, that they were a bother, a nuisance. Here, though, we see something different. We see that the issue has to do with justice. Humans were evil. Or in other words, humans wouldn't stop hurting each other. And whether we like it or not, this is something that's terribly relevant still today. I think every human deserves a second chance. Every human needs love and respect. I think a lot of the hurt that we cause other people is because of the hurt we experience. Hurt people hurt people. But I can still say, given all of that, that humans can be pretty nasty towards each other and then As a result, those who are hurt end up being nasty towards each other, and it just keeps this cycle of violence and anger and greed, and it sucks. One of the lingering questions of humanity is what do we do 
with the fact that humans can be really horrible to each other. Every generation has to answer this question. Uh, what do we do when we look at the world and we see things like human trafficking, racism, violence, corruption, greed, anger, the abuse of women and children? What do we do when we look at the world and we see war and we see fear and we see hurt? What do we do? And, and more specifically, how do we handle this very real problem? And not only do how do we handle it, but as people of faith, we ask the question, what is God going to do about it? What is God going to do with the fact that there are real problems in the world? What are you, God, what are you going to do to make this world a better place? And what are you doing? Why haven't you done enough? How does God feel about all of this evil that's still going on in the world? The sixth chapter of Genesis, the sixth chapter of the book of, of, of the Bible, we get a glimpse of the heart of God. Verse 6 says this, The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. And this is the part I want us to focus on. And his heart was deeply troubled. Here's one of the differences between these stories that we see around ancient floods in one epic, we get the sense that God looks at humanity and is bored. God's just like, whatever, time for something new. And the other one, we get this real picture that God is annoyed. Humans are just a nuisance. They're a bother. So annoying. Get rid of them. But here we see something else about the God we follow, about the God of the Hebrews, the true God of Israel. And it's rather profound. God looks at the problems of the world, and God's heart breaks. God's first response to the evil in this world is to become deeply troubled. The kind of deeply troubled that is only possible if you actually and truly care. Here's what makes the God of the Old Testament different from these other ancient understandings of who God might be, these other perspectives. God looks at humanity and all that humanity does to hurt each other at times, and God's heart hurts too. In fact, I would say this is still relevant today. Every time something happens to someone else, when somebody is hurt, when somebody is taken advantage of, I believe that God's heart hurts. So first, God's first response to the fact that the world is not as it should be is God grieves. God feels it. God cares. God doesn't like it. God grieves when we grieve. That's how God feels. The next question that is, okay, God, that's how you feel. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about the evil that's in the world? Isn't that one of the biggest problems of our faith? Why does God let bad things happen to good people? Now, we're not talking, of, we're talking specifically today about human-caused suffering, so we're not looking at other forms of suffering, and, uh, uh, and so that question is for a whole other conversation. But, but specifically around human-caused suffering, what is God doing about the ways in which people are evil to each other? Have you ever felt that way? You just wanted God to act. If you've ever wanted God to just take decisive action, you are in luck, friends, because what we get to see today is what it looks like when God does something. Uh, God takes action to fix the problem wholeheartedly. Very little holding back. Here's what it looks like for God to do something. Uh, next verse, he says, So the Lord said, I will wait, wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals the birds and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. Boom. <laughs> you wanted God to solve the problem. Problem solved. Think of it this way. No humans, no human suffering. 
I know. We're, we're in some deep philosophical territory here, friends. It's Sunday morning, and this is more than you wanted to think about. But this is something many of us have really wrestled with, so we're going to spend time with it. Uh, God is going to fix the problem. No humans, no human suffering. But something happens that messes that whole plan up. Next verse, it says this. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is, this is the problem with God. If, if we were to take this angle of God fixing, really fixing the human problem, is God just can't help but fall in love with us humans. So here we have it. There's evil in the world. People are hurting other people. Step one, God grieves. He feels it. He hates it. God's heart is broken. Step two, God takes action. But that action is already at this point, as extreme as it is, the story's very extreme, it's still restrained. God puts limits on the action. He says, everyone and everything destroyed except Noah and a a collection of all the animals, living creatures that have the breath of God, the passage says. This is how he explains to Noah, uh, jump to verse 17. He says, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, Noah, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of every living creature, male and female, to keep them alive with you. That's the ultimate story of Noah's Ark, God taking action, but also in this sort of restrained way. And, and here's how it's going to look. We, uh, he finds Noah, and he tells him to make an ark, and he tells him what's going to happen. And this is, this is completely different from the other stories that we, we see of the flood. God is bringing a flood, but, but God is also going to make a covenant with Noah. He promises that he will keep Noah in a representation of all of the earth alive. So this is different from other stories because God, the Hebrew God, is both judge and redeemer in this story. This is the complicated God of the Hebrews that that we get to follow as, as followers of Jesus. Both God and redeemer. Both the person who brings justice and the one who brings mercy in the same story. There aren't multiple gods at play here, good and bad. One God who brings both justice and mercy in this very complicated, messy, hard to understand way. He brings the flood, but he also delivers Noah's family. God does more than just deliver Noah, though. He strikes up a partnership with Noah. He forms an agreement. Uh, He he develops what what God calls is a covenant. And when they get onto dry land, God expands that covenant. Moses ends up on dry land. He offers a sacrifice to worship God. God meets him there. He he smells the sacrifice, uh, the the barbecue that, that Moses is engaged in. In verse 21, it says this, The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. And said uh, in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of the humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. This is so crazy. Uh, And and he goes on, and never again will I destroy all creatures as I have done. He, He puts these limits on it. He says, I understand that really the human heart hasn't changed. He saved, Noah had found favor in him. We don't fully understand why. What Noah, Noah wasn't perfect. We know that much because Noah and his entire family He's talking about the only humans left, and he says they still have kind of evil in their hearts. So he hasn't, the problem hasn't gone away, but he says even though that hasn't changed, humans still kind of are broken and imperfect and hurting, and they're going to hurt others. He says, I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to wipe the earth. I'm not going to wash the earth clean of the evil anymore. I've got to find another way. Because even after all of that, 
um, the problem doesn't go away. In other stories, when the hero builds a boat and survives, the god is annoyed or tries another way to hurt him. Um, that's how people would view God as angry and persistent and relentless and against humans. But this story is yet again different. Afterwards, God's like, you know what? Let's not do that again. Let's do something different. Let's try something different. And God institutes the first sort of covenant where he names it a covenant. And he says, this is what's going to happen. And he gives them a sign, which is going to be the rainbow. And I'm not going to do this again. And we're going to enter into an arrangement. You humans and me, God, we're going to enter into this arrangement. And we're going to be um, uh, in a relationship together. So that's how God deals with it. God enters into a relationship first, first by caring enough to grieve, and second by forming a partnership or a covenant. There are a couple of lessons from this passage. We often want God to do something. We want, we want God to stop the bad things uh, from happening. And why, does God, why doesn't God do something about human-caused suffering? But, but what exactly do we want God to do? Should God get rid of bad people? If so, what would that look like? And who would be tossed out and who would get to stay? How many people would be left over? Would it be one family, like Noah's family, or a dozen families? Would it be your family? Would your family be on the ark if God got rid of all the bad people? So we say, no, 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 God, God doesn't need to get rid of bad people. Let's not do that anymore. God should make bad people better. God should change our hearts. Okay, I agree. How much freedom should God have in changing someone's heart? Should God be able to change someone's heart who doesn't want their heart changed? Can God make some hearts hard and other hearts soft without any say in who, whose heart it belongs to? If so, are we even human anymore, if that's the case? What does it mean to be made in the likeness of God if God does with us and our hearts and our will without any concern for our autonomy? So we say, no, God needs to change our hearts, but of course we need to be willing. We have to be on board. We, we have a, a say in it somehow. We have to be the ones to surrender. And in that, we get even closer to what the story of Scripture is all about. We need a relationship with God, an agreement between God and humans where God does God's part and we do ours, which is most often just surrendering, a negotiation, a, a covenant. This story of Scripture becomes the story of covenants, God-human partnerships, where God works and we, we agree to God's work in our life. First we have Noah and then Abraham and eventually David and ultimately Jesus who forms this new covenant that fulfills all other covenants, the ultimate covenant in the person of Jesus. And this is the one we hold on to the most when we claim to follow Jesus, this new covenant that Jesus brought in his body and his blood. Or as the prophet Jeremiah describes it in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, selected verses it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them, to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive them their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. Jesus comes 
so that we can be in this intimate relationship with God. We don't have to hear about God from other people, he says. You don't have to listen to it, hear about God from your brother, your sister, or your neighbor. You know God personally because God will change your heart and you'll be in this relationship. See, this is the story we find in other epics, the epic of Gilgamesh and the epic of Atrahasis. Uh, God isn't annoyed. God isn't bored. God isn't angry. God isn't a dictator or a tyrant. God is, his heart is broken. God is looking for people like Noah who will partner with him, covenant with him to do things differently. People will receive a new heart. In other words, people will learn to live a new story. People will understand God in a new way. Not all the stories we've been told. Not all the ideas that are false pictures of what the gods, what God is up to but rather what God is really about. The true heart of God has revealed in Scripture and our experience. Noah's flood is the most extreme divine version of going back to the drawing board. It's this idea of washing a clean, going, you know, going back to a clean slate. The flood is all about this idea of washing the earth clean, starting over. It's, it's far more extreme when you think about what it might have been like, but theologically, it's the cleaning of the earth. In a very real sense, in the Noah's story of the flood, the earth is baptized. It's buried so it can rise again, which is a common theme in Scripture and essential to our faith. It's washed clean, fresh start, new beginning. It's a picture of, what, uh, of an image of what God is going to do. And God won't do it again, not in that way, uh, not destroying all of earth. But we experience the flood in a sense when we are baptized. We're washed clean. The old is gone. The, the new is here. And so, friends, I just want to end by saying if you want a fresh start, if you want to accept a new story of your life, if, if, you, want to, if you want to kind of be able to be, have a new beginning and say, like, I'm, I'm ready for a new start. I'm ready for something new. I want, to be, I want the old to be washed away, uh, as violent of that picture as it is. And sometimes we need that. We need that sort of violent waters to wash away the violence of our past and the hurt and all of the things and give us a fresh start if you're interested in being baptized. And if, very real way. You can touch the water and it wash over you. If you're interested in being baptized or your child's interested in being baptized, we'd love to. We'd love to invite you into this beautiful covenant that God is continuing to make, this sacrament where God meets us and gives us a fresh start where we get to experience a new life in Christ, where we get to leave the past behind, no matter how hard it is. If you're interested in that, I invite you to reach out to myself or Alyssa and we'd love to have a conversation about, uh, about baptism. With that, I'm going to invite you to pray with me. God, we come before you and we give you thanks. Uh, We give you thanks that in a world that is constantly trying to control the narrative, you step in and you tell us the true story. You articulate who you really are. And even though that presents a picture that's often far less shallow and far more complicated, a God who is both just and filled with mercy, we see at the heart of it a God who wants to be in a relationship with us, who wants to give us a new story and a new heart. We thank you. We thank you for the forgiveness that we have through Jesus Christ, for the ways in which his body and his blood has been a new covenant for us, that we might be buried with Christ, that we might rise again and experience new life. Remind us of that today. Remind us of our baptism. Help us to live as new people. In your name we pray. Amen.